In chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would uh, just teach us now, that Your Spirit would come and and teach us from Your Word. I pray that uh, we would have uh, minds that are receptive. I pray that You'll help me as I teach this and speak. Give me uh, clarity of thought and speech. I pray that uh, the goal of all of us here would be to submit ourselves under Your Word and to learn from You and to grow in, in wisdom and knowledge. And, and I pray that You would do that. Um, I ask that nothing that I do, my uh, failure to study or prepare or think or speak, none of those things would, would be a hindrance to Your Word going forth and accomplishing that which You have ordained for it to happen. Don't, don't let me get in the way and help us to just think clearly on this passage this morning. And I thank You for what You're going to do today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you have your Bible, hold it, keep it open, and flip it back over to chapter 5 of Matthew. Because I want to, again, walk from the beginning of the sermon to where we are and kind of get a feel for what's being said in verses 7 through 11. Now, what I like to do when I'm beginning to, to study for a passage is I like to understand what it means in its context in Scripture and, and, and explain all that. But I also like to think of a problem that it addresses. And so that in, in, in wrapping it around a problem, I guess that kind of gets to the application side of, of the passage. And, and this week as I begin to, to study and read these verses, what I often do when I the first thing I do is just read the verses over and over and over. Just, just kind of read them, get, get them in my mind really well. Um, and, and as I was reading, I realized that we may have another very often misused passage of Scripture um, in verses 7 through 11. And for the past two weeks, we looked at verses 1 through 6, and we saw that a lot of times people misuse those. They don't understand or put them properly in the sermon and so they're misused and then I began to read these and I was like man I've heard so many people do the same thing with these verses and so I want to try to address that um, one of the fastest spreading theological cancers that has ever gripped the body of Christ is the uh, prosperity theology and in its um, closely related counterpart in uh, name it, claim it, or word faith theology that's kind of exploding all over the world. And I really, I actually kind of despair in using the words or the word theology in those titles because the, the teachings that are prevalent under those labels are not studies of God at all. And that's what theology is. They're not studies of God. They're, they're studies of what God might be like if selfish, sin-sick, worldly, childish, People invented a God that was loosely based on the God of the Bible, then it would be considered theology. And, and, I, and I bring this up a lot, and it, I have some real deep issues with this kind of stuff, mainly because it's, it's growing so fast, and the ones who teach this type of message are getting smarter and smarter at concealing these ideas. They're learning how to remove certain words out of their language so that they're not labeled prosperity preachers and teachers. They're, they're, they're rephrasing their, their wording and it's getting harder and harder to notice this type of teaching. Now, the major concept behind this, this word faith teaching is that if you are a Christian and you have enough faith, 
then whatever you say out loud with your mouth or, or sometimes even think in your, in your mind or your heart will come true. If you have enough faith, it will happen. Now that teaching has as its foundation something that is even more heretical. Because more often than not, these teachers teach that we human beings are actually gods ourselves. We are little gods. In their minds, they read Genesis one twenty seven. They say, we're in the image of God. So we are gods. Therefore, we have the same power that God has. God created the world with His spoken word. And so therefore, we can also create with our words. That's what they believe. It's, it's a terrible misunderstanding of Scripture and, and, and all, but... This is what they teach. And here's a few examples. Uh, Benny Hinn. I don't know if anybody takes Benny Hinn seriously anymore, but this is, he's very well known. Um, He says, quote, I am a God man. You are a little God, end quote. Paul Crouch, a little less known, says, quote, I am a little God, end quote. Kenneth Copeland popular on television still, says, quote, you are anything that he is. You don't have a God in you. You are one, end quote. Uh, Creflo Dollar, a little younger, maybe a little more popular, says, quote, you are gods. Kenneth Hagin says, you are as much the incarnation of God as Jesus Christ was. Paula White, get that right there. Paula White says, quote, you are a little God, end quote. And then um, a man named Casey Treat says, quote, when God looks in the mirror, he sees me. Now, it sounds absurd, but this is rather popular. Now, some of those names you might recognize. Some of them you may not. Some of them are kind of a, a generation that's beginning to... Uh, fade out of the limelight. A lot of those are still common people on TBN. If you turn on any kind of Christian television network, you're going to see a lot of this stuff. And and this type of idea that I am a little God leads to the conclusion inevitably that if I'm a little God, then I can do what God can do. It, it just this is their this is how it goes. And so it leads them to conclusions about their powers as little gods. For example. Joyce Meyer says, quote, we are created in his image and we can also call things that are not as though they are. We can speak positive thoughts about ourselves into the atmosphere and thereby prophesy our future. Words have creative power. And she wrote an article for a magazine called You Are What You Speak. T.D. Jakes says, quote, you have to decide to be blessed. So it's, it's, all, it's your, your power. When I get my mind ready for this year, there's going to be blessings. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be opportunities, end quote. He, because I've decided this is what God's going to do because I've decided it. That's what he's saying. And of course, a list like this wouldn't be complete without some quotes from Mr. Joel Osteen, he says, quote, What follows I am will always come looking for you. When you say I am clumsy, clumsiness comes looking for you. When you say I am so old, wrinkles come looking for you. When you go through the day saying I am so blessed, blessings come looking for you. When you say, I am strong, strength comes tracking you down, end quote. So we can turn all our gym memberships in and and all that stuff because it's just going to come looking. Now see, that's the idea that we are little gods leads to that. I have power to create things, to make things happen, conjure up things that are not with my words and my thoughts. And if you have enough faith, it will happen. And this is what they teach. It's false. It's deadly. It has no ground in in Scripture properly understood in context. And usually comes from about a 5th or 6th grade reading comprehension, I think. Another downside to this is when things don't come true, like you said they would, then it's your fault. 
You didn't have enough faith. So a loved one gets sick, someone dies, it's your fault. All the blame for the negative things that happen in the world is your fault. Somebody didn't have enough faith, it's all on you. They remove God's providence and sovereignty over all things and they put the individual at the helm of of everything. It's all on us. Now the reason I point that out is because the passage that we're looking at today in verses 7 to 11 are often misused as a proof text for that type of teaching. They look at this and they say, see right there it says, ask and you shall receive. It's right there. If I ask for it, God has to give it to me. Like we've got God on a leash and He has to do what we say. They think they have it figured out. The problem is that contradicts the rest of Scripture as a whole, and it makes absolutely no sense in the sermon. But like I said, they have a poor reading comprehension. People, for the most part, for a long time, have not been taught how to properly read Scripture as a whole, and so they come to these conclusions. So that's why I want to recap the Sermon on the Mount from the beginning and try to find this line, see how Jesus is flowing through the sermon so we can understand what He's getting ready to do. So at the beginning of... The Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, he sits down and he begins to teach his disciples. And the first thing he does in the form of the Beatitudes is he explains the nature and the character of a Christian or or a, a citizen of God. One of his disciples. This is what a Christian will look like. And we studied all of those in detail. This is what a Christian will look like. And then after that, he... He he moves into what our plight will be in the world as we live out this character. As we are Christians, this is what's going to happen. You will be persecuted. And then we we saw that and talked about that. And, And then he goes into explaining that in spite of being persecuted, you should continue to live as salt and light on the earth. And that... Some people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They will see our lives. They will be converted through the distinction that we live. They will ask us about the hope that is within us. And we can share the gospel with those people. And then he explains that he's not teaching anything new. You can imagine his listeners would have been thinking, persecuted. No, we're the, we're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. But what God wants for us is to come out of persecution. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. It's, it's going to happen. So he's explaining what, he's, what I'm teaching is not something new. It's not something contemporary. It's the simplest and truest sense of the law of Moses. And he then goes through the rest of chapter 5 explaining and giving examples of how the law had been misinterpreted and mistaught. He's not come to do away with the law. He's come to fulfill it. If you're going to live by the standard of the law, you're going to have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Here are a few examples. And then at the end of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's quoting, just like in the Old Testament over and over, you therefore must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. That's this idea. If you want to live by the law that the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching, that's fine, just be perfect. Then he begins in chapter 6 to show how, as Christians, these good deeds that we will do, we should live certain a certain way, They have to be analyzed also to make sure that we're doing them properly. We have to be good and we should be doing good things, but make sure you're not doing them to be seen by others only. That includes giving to the poor, that includes prayer, that includes fasting. And then he specifically shows how not only should we not be living for the praises of men, but we should not be living for material possessions in this life, in this world. We shouldn't live to acquire them, nor should we be emotionally anxious about having the things that we need to live on. God will take care of those things. And he he concludes chapter 6 by showing that our one desire should actually be, our one focus should be live for the kingdom of God. And all this other stuff will be added. All this, this, these things that you feel like you need and, and all these things, they will be added. Your job is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We should never have our hopes and our thoughts set on this world and this life, but on the next world and the next life. 
So if you're going to live like the Pharisees, you're going to have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. You're actually going to have to be as good as God. So you better just seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all this other stuff will be added. And then in chapter 7, where we started two weeks ago, this is the final chapter of the sermon. We're kind of coming to a close and He's concluding all this. He's given us all this teaching that spans every aspect of our lives, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all this stuff. And He wants to make sure that we are going to use this properly. This is almost like the application part of the sermon. Although the sermon is so well put together that every word he says, you read it, you're just like, everything. It's it's exhortation and rebuke and it it challenges you. But this is kind of like, he's given you the teaching, now what are you going to do with it? And for the last two weeks, we looked at verses 1 through 6. And those were geared at how we look at other Christians in their process of living out the kingdom lifestyle and how we are to advance the kingdom among the law. So it's like if, as if Jesus had said, this is how you're supposed to live. Verses, or chapters 5 and 6. And then in chapter 7, now that you know this, you're human beings, you're going to be tempted to just take what you know and look at everybody else. And see how they're living. See if they're doing what I just said. So... Look at yourself first. Get the log out of your eye first. Then look at your brothers and sisters to help them get the specks out of their eyes. Also, when it comes to explaining and teaching and proclaiming this godly truth and wisdom to outsiders, how we are supposed to live, be discerning. And hold this truth with utmost respect. Hold God's word in a place of honor. Don't poke holes in God's Word to make it easier for people to come to terms with. Respect it. And if they're not going to respect it, if they're not going to have it, if they're just going to mangle it and twist it, you just got to let them go. I'll pray for you. And that's it. Proclaim it unadulterated and allow the Holy Spirit to work. Now that brings us to verses 7 through 11. And we have to ask ourselves, now what is Jesus going to say next? If we assume the position of the, the word faith teachers that all of a sudden Jesus is, after all of this, he's going to immediately just derail his train and go off on this tangent about positive confession and, and, and speaking things into existence. That doesn't make any sense. He's not talking about just anything you come up with. You just ask and it's given. And I, I hope you see that that would, that would be foolish. So what is he doing? He's just given us all this amazing teaching. And we've been instructed to use godly wisdom contained in Scripture with respect and discernment. Look at ourselves first, then look at other people. Now we need to know God's Word and we need to have godly wisdom in order to apply it to our lives and into the the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to have godly wisdom in order to discern How this is supposed to be applied to the lives of those outside the faith, outside the church, who Jesus calls dogs and pigs. Be careful, be discerning, be wise. Now the next thought in the minds of a lot of people, maybe even some of you here, most definitely the minds of the people he was preaching to there is, well how do I get it? I I know I want to order my life according to godly wisdom. I know I want to help my brothers and sisters. I want to use godly wisdom to to apply it to my life, to help them and and, and, and and keeping one another accountable. I want to evangelize the lost. I want to be wise and discerning about how to use the scriptures. I want to have a vast understanding of how to apply godly wisdom, but how do I get it? Now that's a question a lot of people have. It's a very important question, very common question. If we're all honest, we have to admit that there is a difference between reading this As literature. And then taking all of this. All the principles taught in scripture. And God's word. And and all of the gospel. And applying it to the. Innumerable number of circumstances. And scenarios that we're going to come in contact with. On on this earth. In this lifetime. I mean it's, it's vast. You know. Should I smoke cigarettes? Should I go to college? Should I work here or there? Should I marry her? That's not in here. It's not there. So how do I know, based on what this says, how to act on a daily basis? All these different scenarios. Where should I, I don't know, 
Add in your own situation. I've often said that the gospel, and we can say all of biblical truth, the gospel as a whole is, is kind of like a topical cream that can be applied to wounds. It works on all wounds. You just have to know how to put it on there, how to, how to rub it in. That is, in, in my opinion, that is gospel ministry. Learning how to administer the gospel like a medicine. Do I give them... Two milliliters twice a day? Do I give them 800 milligrams you know, before bed? How do I do it? The gospel and God's wisdom fixes everything. It addresses every situation. It is profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness. All manner of life and godliness can be, can be found in this word. Although every individual situation might not be addressed in his word. And we all know people who are like that. We can go to them with anything. You know, what should I do? It's not in the Bible where I should go to college or where I should get a job or what I should do. And, and they, just, they just start talking. They just spew forth. Well, it does say this and this and this. And so if we put all this stuff together and you're just like, but it's not. How do you get that? How did you, where did you come up with that? Another problem might be that some people simply just concede the knowledge that it takes to perform verses 1 through 5. They concede the discernment that it takes to perform verse 6 and in order to release themselves from that duty. And they say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just not real smart uh, and, and I'll just leave that up to the professional Christians, the, the preachers, the teachers, the counselors, and, and those people. And the problem with that is, is we're all commanded and taught to do these things. We don't get to opt out. Nobody. There aren't different levels of Christianity. There aren't the normal Christians and then the, you know, the, the special Christians, the professional Christians. They're just Christians. Now, I mean, we might be on different levels in different places, but we're all commanded. Every Christian is commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. That's scriptural truth. Teach people this stuff. So... We're all supposed to be doing this, teaching, counseling, exhorting, rebuking, guiding one another. Whether you're a, a husband or a father or a mother or a friend or a Christian brother or sister, you are commanded to disciple. Use godly wisdom in order to disciple and help other people follow the Lord. That's our job. That's what we do as Christians. And if we're not doing that, we're living in open rebellion against the, the Great Commission. We have to be doing that. And that happens in a lot of different areas in a lot of different ways. So you're not released from the duty of making disciples and helping one another because you might be a little slower on the takeoff up here. That, that, that doesn't matter. The Bible actually says God chooses the, the foolish things and the weak things and things that are not to shame the, the, the wise and the strong and, and to bring to pass things that are. So if you say, well, I'm not smart enough, you're the perfect candidate to be used by God. He wants to display His power through those of us who might be a little slower, even though you might not get paid to do it. Now, we're, so, we're, so we're not off the hook. We don't get to opt out because Jesus goes in verses 7 to 11 to tell us exactly how we can get that wisdom. How do I obtain godly wisdom? How do I get the wisdom and the discernment it takes to, to, to appropriately apply biblical truth in every situation under the sun? When somebody comes to me and says, what do I do? We can say, well, the Bible says this, 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 and this. Put all that together. If you're doing that, this is what you should do. How do I get it? Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock. And it will be opened to you. The first word is ask. Ask and it will be given to you. But what is the it? Ask and it. If it's word faith theology, it's whatever you want it to be. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount in the context, it's the, the, the it is the subject that he's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 7. Don't let paragraph breaks and, and subject headings and things, don't let those confuse you. Those weren't there in the original. This was just a one sermon, one block. This is saying, ask for godly wisdom and it will be given to you. Now, why do we ask for things? This is simple. We ask for things that we don't have, but we want. So if I don't have the number for Pizza Hut, but I want it, I'm going to go to somebody. I'm going to say, hey, you have the number for Pizza Hut. I'm going to ask you for it. Same, same idea here. 
God has all wisdom, all knowledge, all discernment. It's all contained in him. And we do not. We want it. And so we're told to ask for it. Ask and you shall receive. Simple as that. Ask for it. The next command is to seek. He says, seek and you will find. Now, to seek, we know, means to look for something. Now, why would we seek something? Why do we look for things? Well, we look for something or we seek something because we we know it's there. We think it's there. But we don't have possession of it. I don't have it in my hand yet, but I want to have possession of it. And so we go and look for it. When it comes to acquiring godly wisdom and godly knowledge and discernment in order to mature in your faith, in order to apply godly wisdom to situations in everyday life, we have to look for it. That means we go to where we think it might be, right here, and we look for it. We search the area where we think it might be in order to locate it. Jesus says if we seek after it, we will find it. Again, it's that simple. The last command is... Knock. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now this one's a little more pointed. We're kind of homing in a little little more um, specific here. Why do you knock on something? Are we knocking on a, a cantaloupe to see if it's if it's ripe? Are we what are we what are we uh, well it says the last part says that we're knocking and something's gonna be open. So what is it that we knock on that is open? That's a door. We know that he's talking about a door. When we knock on a door, what's the point? The point is I'm out here and you're in there or something's in there and I want to be in there. But there's this door that I can't get through because it's separating me and you. And I want to get on the inside. I'm out here and you're in there. You don't know I'm out here because there's this door here. You can't see me. So I need to let you know that I'm out here. And the most socially acceptable way to let somebody on one side of a door know that you're on the other side of the door is to knock. Socially acceptable. And because we everybody knows this, you hear a knock, there's somebody at the door. We don't, we don't think, we don't want that knocking noise. We know somebody's at the door. So you knock on the door. Let that person know that you're out there and they will come and open the door. It's the same Jesus says with godly wisdom, godly knowledge, godly discernment of the hearts of men. We know it's there. Because God has all wisdom and all knowledge and all discernment. He knows the hearts of all people at all times. He he knows what every single individual needs to hear at a moment in time to fix whatever the problem might be. So it's there. The problem is we don't have it. We're separated from it by this proverbial door. We're fallen people. We are creations. We are not omniscient gods. We're creations. So we have this... A lack of knowledge. It's there. We don't have it. God does have it. We want to let God know that we want it. We want to let Him know I'm out here in the hallway. I'm out here on the porch. I want you to know that I want this. Jesus says knock and it will be open. Make it known that you want the wisdom. And God will open the floodgates of heaven and pour out this wisdom and knowledge and discernment. Again, it's that simple. We wonder, how did somebody get so smart? We wonder this. Man, it, Well, it's that simple. Ask, seek, knock. Now you can see that there are three different commands given here and they're not exactly the same. And these are sort of a threefold teaching on obtaining godly wisdom. The three commands and they're progressively a little more active. The first is just asking. This would be like going to God in prayer and saying, I need this. This wisdom, I need this discernment, I need you to help me here. You can do that anywhere, at any time. You don't even have to move to ask God. You just ask. The next is a little more active. To seek something or go look for something, it takes a little bit of movement. It takes at least moving your eyeballs around a general area to observe that area. Now, of course, we know that this wisdom and knowledge and discernment is not like a physical, tangible thing that we're going to see and hold. It's, it's mental and, and spiritual ascent. It's, it's kind of a, an idea or abstract thought. So we're going to observe the areas and where we think this might be so that we can locate it. But then there's knocking. Once again, this is just another step, slightly more active. The act of knocking is a physical act. You, you must not only engage your mind, but your body. Is the final step of action. So once again, 
This is not talking about there's a door somewhere we're knocking on. It's not literal. It's figurative. He's painting word pictures. He's telling us that this quest for godly wisdom and knowledge takes more than just asking, but it does take asking. It takes more than just seeking, but it does take seeking. It takes knocking and seeking and asking. All three of these are meant to be used continually and together. Now, the words ask, seek, and knock are all in the present imperative Present active imperative form. So that means they could also be worded. Be asking. Be seeking. Be knocking. They're active and they're continual. This is a lifelong quest. That we are to pursue intently. In order to receive godly wisdom. Godly discernment and knowledge to grow. It's all the time. It's always asking. Always seeking. Always knocking. In verse 8. Jesus repeats these three levels of pursuit, but this time he kind of rephrases it so as to give the the reasoning behind what he commanded in verse 7. And verse 8 says, For everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And he starts off with the word for, explanatory conjunction. In other words, do these things because... Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks opens. The Greek word there for everyone means, you guessed it, everyone. Everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. This godly wisdom, this discernment, anybody who asks for it gets it. And the one who seeks will find it. The one who knocks, it will be opened. This wisdom and truth is made readily available. Now, Jesus is giving an explanation and a reason. The the reason verse 7 is valid and authoritative and true is because verse 8 is true. It, It is because everyone who asks receives. It is because the one who seeks finds. It is because the one who knocks, it is opened up to him because of all of those. Because those are true, ask, seek, knock. It's there. It's ready. You can read this. Every one of us can read this as a promise to us. If I will ask, I will receive. If I will seek, I will find. If I will knock, it will be opened. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives another reasoning. That concludes in verse 11, but just look at verses 9 and 10. Or, so he's like, if that argument didn't work, here's another one. Or... Which one of you, if his son asks him for a piece of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now in Jesus' day, a piece of homemade, home-baked bread is going to come out looking like a, your typical rock that they would have found laying on the shore of the Sea of Galilee or, or around town, small, round, kind of light in color. At a glance, a rock and a piece of bread might look fairly similar. So Jesus is asking these people... If your son came to you and asked you for a piece of bread, more than likely because he's hungry, he wants something to eat, which one of you is going to hand him a rock? Which of you, instead of giving your child what he needs to live on, sustenance, would attempt to play a cruel trick on him by slipping him a rock instead of a piece of bread? Which one of you would do that? And the answer, of course, is nobody in their right mind is going to do this. This is just mean. We, we care about our children. We want to see our children live and thrive and grow and be happy. We wouldn't want to, to ever mockingly suggest that our children would eat a rock instead of a piece of bread. The second question is just like it. If your son asks for a fish, again, more than likely for food, a piece of baked or cooked or broiled fish, which of you would give him a serpent, a snake, or it could possibly have been an eel? What parent in their right mind would give them a snake instead of a fish to eat? The answer, of course, is nobody's going to do this. Nobody. This is common. You do not have to be a Christian to understand that I'm not going to give my child something harmful to eat rather than good to eat. It's a no-brainer. We love our children. We want to provide for them. We don't find it amusing to deceive them with potentially harmful things rather than helpful things. So nobody. The answer is nobody. And then verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now this is the same type of argument that Jesus used back in chapter 6, verses 26 and 30. An argument from the lesser to the greater. He assumes these common people who would obviously never seek to deceive their children with harmful things rather than food. If they know better than to do that then of course God will give us good things if we ask Him for those things. It's it's just common sense. Now notice the comparison that He makes. He says, if you then who are evil, speaking to the doctrine of depravity, let's be honest, least favorite doctrine, we don't like this. Bible teaches we are born children of wrath. Dead in trespasses and sins. Enemies of God. Haters of God. Not looking for God. Turned aside to our own way. Rebels to God's will. Completely unable to do anything to help ourselves for the better. Not only are we unable, we actually have no natural desire to. We're in bondage to sin because we actually like sin. In our natural state. We are evil. Even the most loving parents and friends... The nicest people that we know are all children of Adam. They all come from that same line. We're all sinful. We are evil according to God's standard. And by the way, that's the only one that matters. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It matters what God says. And according to His standard, we are evil. So Jesus is saying if you, sinful, evil human beings know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Heavenly Father give you good gifts if you ask Him? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. We are the lesser. He's making a comparison between us and God. We are created in the image of God, and we do mirror some of His qualities as fallen human beings, but since the fall of man, we are fallen Creatures, we portray a marred image of God. We are fallen and sinful. He is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, infinitely holy, righteous, just, and gracious creator, sustainer of all that there is. We don't have a whole lot to stand on in this comparison. We're lining the two up. We're not even showing up on the scale. Jonathan Edwards would say we're like worms in the dirt. So if we can give good gifts and we're sinful, then how much more will God give good gifts? If He is infinitely beyond us in love and care and compassion, the question is how much more? And the answer is the difference between a holy God and sinful people, that much more. We can't even understand how much more. Notice Jesus doesn't say we are evil and God is good. He says we are evil and God is our Father in heaven. He's speaking again to God's transcendent nature. He's vastly superior to us in all things. In every way we can imagine. We can attempt to be good fathers, good mothers to our children. But we will fall short every single day. We can think of good gifts to give to our children. But God gives perfect gifts. The things we do are temporal for our children. God gives eternal gifts. We give gifts to our children to get them to want to be around us and like us and think we're cool. God gives gifts to us so that we will like and enjoy Him, which is the chief end of man. Psalm 103, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Isaiah 49, 14 and 15 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 66, 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. In all of those passages, God is compared not only to a father, but to a mother. He contains all that there is 
as it pertains to a parental nature and care. Good mothers get their good motherhood from God's care and compassion. Good fathers get their good fatherhood from God's care and protection. He is infinitely greater than any earthly mother or father we could ever imagine. And notice that He gives us good things. Now this is where we often run wild. We grab good things and just take off running. Because we read good things and we think from a human perspective. We think from a temporal perspective or a fallen perspective. So we think good things. We hear good things and we think, oh yeah, good things. TVs, cars, houses, land, vacations, wealth, earthly prosperity, good business deals, lots of toys, a life of ease and comfort. Oh yeah, good things. We almost never think of good things the way the Bible describes them. We almost never think of good things like wisdom and knowledge and, and children and, and spiritual guidance, godly friendships, godly moms and dads, godly husbands and godly wives, trials, afflictions, hardships. The Bible says these things are good. These are the types of good things that are not earthly, they're not temporal, they are good as it is defined by God. And when this says good things... We have to concede this is defined by God, not us. We don't get to say what's good. We don't know what's good. We think we do, but we don't. We don't know what's best in every situation. Ecclesiastes 6.12 says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't know what good is. We think we do, but we don't. We have no idea. I can't even decide between a Kit Kat and a Twix at a gas station. So what makes me think that I can go into every situation that people are coming to me with and know how to give them good advice and good wisdom and good knowledge? I don't know. I don't have it. Now, particularly here, Jesus is speaking about godly wisdom for applying biblical truth to our lives and the lives of others. The topic he's been talking about since verse 1 of chapter 7. If you, fallen humans, evil parents, can give good gifts to your children and you don't even really know what good is, then do you not see that the eternally transcendent God of the universe will give you godly wisdom if you will ask for it? You just have to ask. It's there. That song we sang. Hast thou not seen how thy desires heir have been granted in what he ordaineth? We'll put it in, that, in our vernacular. Have you not seen all the things God has given you every single day of your life? In the things that he's doing, everything we've ever wanted. He lavishes us with this. He gives us all these blessings. We barely even notice it. And then we wonder if he will actually give us wisdom and knowledge if we go to him and ask for it. And some of you remember when we went through the book of James. We saw God desires to give wisdom. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. He gives generously to all. That's more than enough. Without reproach. If you ask and truly desire to obtain that godly wisdom, he will give it. Then you're saying, wait a minute. I'm not receiving I'm not finding. I'm not opening. I've asked God for this type of thing and it just I don't seem to have received it. I've just been on I've just been on my knees day after day after day begging God for this godly wisdom and this knowledge and he just won't give it. Well, there are some prerequisites that we have to meet before this can be applied. First and foremost, we have to be Christians. You must be a Christian. If you're not a believer, you've never been born again, you've never been adopted into God's family, then you don't qualify for this. God's not your father. He's your enemy. You're at enmity with Him. You're a rebel against God. He's not going to give you this wisdom. That's why you don't get what you want. The way that we have access to the Father is through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. So if I've never been cleansed with that blood, if I've never trusted in Christ in my place for the forgiveness of my sins, I don't have that access. I can't go into the presence of God and ask for these things. So if you're not a believer, you're alienated from God. You're not His child. 
And this says, your father who is in heaven will give good things to you. If you're not his child, he's not your father. So first thing, you have to be a believer. It's prerequisite. Be a Christian. The second prerequisite for qualifying for this teaching is that you have to ask for what God wants to give. You have to ask for what God wants to give. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's that simple. James, many people consider the book of James as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. That's why some of this stuff is so closely related. And James says the reason you're not getting what you're asking for is because you're asking for the things that you want, not the things that God wants. You're asking selfishly. We learned that in the Lord's Prayer. Every one of those petitions were things that were explicitly spelled out somewhere else in Scripture. So Jesus was saying, pray this, 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 and this. All these things God's already said He wants to do. When you pray those things, He will do them. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him according to His will. You've got to ask what He wants for. Where do we find God's will? God's Word. You get in God's Word, you find out God's will. You learn God's will, you ask God for God's will. He's already said He's going to do it. He's not a liar, so He will give you exactly what you pray for if you know God's will. You ask for those things. And then the last prerequisite is that you have to be up to date on confession of sin and living in a godly manner. Several passages of Scripture that show that if we're living in sin, our prayers are hindered. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Psalm 66, 18 and 19. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And 1 John 3, 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do what God says, live how God wants you to live, ask for the things that God wants you to ask for, you're going to get it. First Peter says, husbands, we're supposed to honor our wives as the weaker vessel, as, as the, more, the, the more fragile vessel, so that our prayers will not be hindered. When there's unconfessed sin or we're living a life that doesn't honor and please God, we're remaining in our sin, it's more than likely we're not going to be asking for things that God wants to do in our lives and the lives of others. And so He's not going to answer those prayers. So you have to be a Christian. You have to ask for the things God wants you to ask for. And you have to be living a godly lifestyle and be confessed of your sin. So in all of this, verses 1 through 11, put all that together, we see God wants us to learn how to apply all this teaching that He's given us in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, and, and I think you could take chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew and get every bit of the rest of the New Testament from those chapters because this is the, the summary of Jesus' teaching which is the same as the Old Testament teaching. He's just, he's just giving it again. So, so, so He wants us to learn all this stuff and He wants us to learn how to apply biblical truth to our lives which we could find in, in the New Testament epistles and, and in the Old Testament law. He wants us to learn how to live lives where we, we look at our own lives, we look at the lives of other Christians and, and keep them accountable and help one another. And He wants us to know how to discern and, and have wisdom when we're conversing with unbelievers. He wants us to know all of that. Because sometimes it's hard to, to tell who are the, the, the pigs and the dogs. How do I know? We might not know right off the bat how people are going to respond to, to this word or that word or this message. And that's why he tells us to ask, seek, and knock. And he'll give you this. It's a supernatural wisdom. It's not worldly wisdom. This is not something that we can conjure up on our own. We have to ask for it. Pray, dig, study the word, learn the word, read these Truths, learn the gospel and learn how to apply the gospel like a topical cream to the infectious wounds of 
everybody's lives. You just got to learn this stuff. And it's hard. It takes a long time. It takes trying and failing and getting back up and trying again. Sometimes you will be received well and somebody will say, thank you so much. Other times you'll be mocked, ridiculed, made fun of, stabbed in the back, abused. More often than not, you're not going to receive from others this type of love and tenderness and compassion that you try to show to them. More often than not. And that shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what other people are going to do to you. We don't do these things. We don't love people this way because they're going to love us back. We do these things. We love people because it's commanded. Because this is what we would like for them to do to us. Right? Verse 12. So... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Now we're going to look at that next week in more detail. But you see what he's doing. It it connects. It all comes together. All of the law and the prophets. All of the Old Testament is fulfilled when we love one another like we want to be loved. Humbly, respectfully, honestly, discerningly. Christian brothers and sisters and outsiders. I would want you to do the same for me. And so this is what I'm doing for you. It's the golden rule. So, maybe you realize, I've got sin in my life. I need to confess. That's why my prayers aren't being answered, because I have sin. And I need to confess that sin in order to clear this pathway to God's presence. To confess means to say the same thing as. So you need to tell God that your sin is sin. That it is simply unacceptable in your life and it needs to be gone. You're sorry. Run to your Father and ask for forgiveness. If you're not a Christian, you should turn away from your sin and worship God. Jesus lived all of this out perfectly in our place. He done it in His life. And then He died on the cross in our place. And then He came back from the dead three days later to prove that He was actually God. And because we had been justified, and if we trust in that for ourselves and believe In Jesus, we're adopted into God's family. We're set free from this bondage. But you have to respond to that message with repentance and faith. Turn away from your sin. Trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. And then you'll have a direct relationship with the God of the universe. By way of His Son. And you can begin to pray and ask. And seek. Knock. For godly wisdom. And He will pour it out. Take Him up on it. He says it. Take him up. I've never heard anybody say I spent the last 40 years of my life on my face before God every morning, afternoon, and night begging for wisdom and He never gave it. Nobody's ever said that. Because He says right here, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, it will be opened to you. So let's pray.